at the end that maybe this wasn't Emmett Till's body. And, you know, the whole thing with Carolyn, of course. Now, what Carolyn had to say, the jury never heard, although they actually did hear it because the defense attorneys had spread it in the paper just the day before the trial began. Yeah, and during the recess of the opening day of trial. Right, right. But, but then, so the jury, even though they might have, you know, believed that these two were, were guilty, clearly they were looking for a way to get out of actually having to prosecute them, to convict them of, of, of his murder. Welcome to part two of The Lynching of Emmett Till with our guest, Devery Anderson, the author of Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement. This is Loki Mulholland, and it's time to get uncomfortable. Yeah, the thing they told reporters is that, well, the state didn't prove its case. We, we don't know whose that body was. It was too de- decomposed and damaged to know who it was, and that's they felt they were able to have a clear conscience and, and, and say that. Um, you could put so many things together. I mean, they could admit to kidnapping him, the, the rings on the finger, you know, how did it get there? Could, you know, they're just, but, you know, and people, and murders, you know, people convict, get convicted when there's the evidence is circumstantial. Um, that, that's wouldn't have been a first, but that was what they used to, um, to acquit him to quit them but yeah there was there was no doubt i think steve whitaker said all but one doubted that the body was emmett till and that the men were guilty um but they all could cling to well that they didn't prove the the case right and that's how it ended unfortunately because they didn't want to be the jury that convicted uh you know Two white men killing a black man, man, uh, for assaulting a white woman. Right, and you know there was a, and the, I suppose one reason the citizens' council may have been a little bit worried is if uh, because even though there was all the local pressure to acquit, there was this national and international pressure to convict because I think people wanted to see some justice in the South. People had been very critical of Southern way of life and the lynching era and all that stuff. But the local pressure to acquit won out because that's where they had to live and be and interact with people on a day-to-day basis. So because it had, the case had received international coverage, I could see why the citizens' councils might have thought this time it may not work in our favor because the prosecution was, you know, Gerald Chatham and uh, Robert Smith were trying hard to prosecute. And you could say it was because it was such an, a case of uh, getting so much attention and the judge was acting, you know, Judge Swangle was known to be a fair judge. It was the defense and the jury that was came down to, you know, being the, the defense did some unethical things. I think by them not laying out the argument in the trial that the body wasn't Emmett Till and the body was planted or that Emmett Till was still alive, where that could all be done, you know, dealt with under cross-examination. They waited till closing arguments. I mean, uh, Sheriff Strider talked about that, but uh, uh, nobody else had a chance to really uh, talk about it or get cross-examined about it. Mm-hmm. And they wait till, but but the, what the one thing he didn't, the only thing Sheriff Strider said is that he didn't know that, that he couldn't tell that body was Emmett Till. I didn't know who Emmett Till was. Uh, we have had reports of another murder. 
but as far as all the stuff about it being a hoax, Emmett Till being alive, uh, the body being planted in the river, the defense didn't bring that up during testimony. They only brought it up during closing arguments. And, I, and I'm not an attorney, so I didn't know if that was, if, if that was something they could, could ethically do. And I talked to a defense attorney when I did my book, and he said, no, if that wasn't brought up during testimony, they shouldn't have brought it up then because there had been no chance to cross-examine and refute it. Right. So the defense did stuff like that, and the jury was, was prejudiced. So it boiled down to unethical defense and a racist jury. And that wasn't going to change no matter what, I don't think. Yeah. So later on, over the years, uh, there's, there's been a lot, of, a lot of rumors and things like that, just, just some of just utter complete nonsense uh, about what happened to Emmett Till. Because um, there's so many holes and speculations and such. Can, not that we need to go through every single one, but some of the more popular uh, rumors, like he was castrated and these sort of things. Yeah, that's one. And, and I just, to me, you know, as a historian, I just think the facts matter. If they're small facts, big facts, if they don't make a difference, um, you know, I still think you have to get the story right and then go from there. And, and one of the things that there was a rumor, I'm not sure if when the rumor started that he was castrated, but it's been, it was revived, I guess, uh, in the 2000s. Uh, one of the documentaries about Emmett Till interviews someone. And, and when you're interviewing someone for a documentary and they're thinking back on things they remembered decades earlier, it's just naturally they're going to get things wrong. They're not there with documents. It's different than, you know, documentary in that sense with that relies on memory is so different than what a historian would do relying on documents that were created, you know, good primary documents that were created at the time. So you can measure when someone forgets or when the story changes or when there's conflicts. In this documentary, someone said that Moses Wright told him that Emmett's, Emmett had been castrated. And I remember every time I've heard, seen that movie in a, in a group setting, people gasp. And I always want to say it's not true. And, and the reason we know it wasn't true is because Emmett's mother was the first one to say on the witness stand that she examined him from head to toe and he was uh, intact. Mm -hmm. And she said that in interviews since. And also when they performed an autopsy on him in 2005, they, you know, one of the things they said was his body was actually in better shape when in 2005 than it was in 1955 because the, the, the Emmett Till body that we saw in those photographs was still bloated from having been in the river. And he was in a very airtight casket because they had that thick glass that they had placed over his body so that people filing by wouldn't touch him or maybe smell him as well. So that kept the casket sealed really well. And so his, he was in pristine condition other than the effects of the beating and being in the river. His body hadn't decomposed any further and his genitals were intact. And the, the FBI investigator told me that there's a photograph of someone with a latex glove, just being very clear, holding those genitals up and photo and they photographed him for the autopsy. He was not castrated, but that rumor has persisted because someone said it in a documentary and that was not carefully edited out. Like I think it should have been. And so that's, that's one. 
Yeah, well, and, and, and the castration part would, would fit the narrative to begin with because that was a common thing that would take place when, when African-Americans right. were lynched. Right, and so that would have yeah, uh, lent some, you know, people would have assumed that was a true, a credible story because, uh, you know, of how people viewed black men as rapists and they would castrate them. So, but, 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 but I think the important thing to this in particular is, is that this refutes the idea that he was a man, right? Because if he was a, you know, which yeah. he was, just, he had just turned 14. He was only a month into being 14. That, yeah. that thus, they, you know, he really clearly wasn't the threat that a man would be, uh, you know. Uh, so why castrate a boy? Right? Yeah, I think had these men thought they were going after someone who'd been accused of rape, they would have castrated him. And so that tells me that the, when, they, when Moses Wright said that, that when they came to kidnap him, that they said, we want the boy that did that talk, that that's all he had been accused of was talk. And so that, that it was only talk that set these men off to do what they did. I mean, they didn't have a right they didn't to say, we want the boy who grabbed my wife. We want the boy who, you know, who said all, you know, who, you know, grabbed her wrist and grabbed her by the waist and none of that took place. Yeah. So they were set off by a very minor, minor infraction. Mm. And that's what led them to kill. Right. So I think it's important to know that because it shows how easily, how, a, a black man had to live in fear over the smallest thing because that wouldn't have been unusual for them to think that if they talked to a woman, if they looked, you know, Wheeler Parker talked about, you know, you know, he, his mother warned him not to have a wandering eyeball, which means, you know, if you just looked for a second or then, then turned away, that would have set somebody off. So you didn't have to be accused of rape. You only had to be accused of talking looking not saying ma'am and people would have thought that was disrespectful and it, you know so that's important i think to to point out my work has taken me to a lot of places and i've been fortunate to meet some incredible people but when i came to selma and met joanne blackman bland i knew i was in the presence of greatness joanne was 11 years old when she was attacked on the edmund pettus bridge on bloody sunday in 1965. She wasn't old enough to vote, but understood its importance enough to be there. After Selma is an in-depth look at how our right to vote has eroded since the signing of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the fight for the right to vote continues. Get informed. You can find After Selma on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. I mean, LeVon, you actually say, I, I believe it's an, an ordinary hero, that you didn't even want to be in the same room as a white woman because you just never knew what might set her off. Right. And then you'd, you'd just be the obvious, you know, target. Yeah. There's been one of the reasons, problems I've had to this day, and, and I'm, I'm much better than I used to be, was a lot of the, 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 uh, the men who were accused of rape. And I had problems because I grew up in a society where that is the first thing they would say that you raped a white woman. And that meant you were gonna die one way or another. Uh, and today it doesn't mean that, but it took me a while to get used to the fact that people do that and it doesn't matter whether they're white or black, that that could happen. Because I was brought up afraid 
And the, my definition of rape was to touch the white woman. You didn't have to do anything, but you touched her. And when you grew up in the South, you knew better than that. And you knew better than to look at them funny. Or if they were accused of wanting you, then it was your fault. That could get you killed. So there were a lot of things that uh, that were brought up in the Emmett Till case because that's the way people thought anyway. So and she that's why so many parents were were upset, were uh, nervous about their sons. So Levon, so you're saying even if, so let's say if a white woman, you know, was getting sweet on you, that they could be like, oh wait a second, clearly, you know. You're, you know, you're the one who needs to be uh, put in your right. place again. Right. Now, she might get beat up, but you're the one who's going to die. Right. So this explains why uh, when you first met my mom, she wanted to go for walks and stuff, and like, I don't got time. For, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want any of that. Right. We can, <laughs> we can go on demonstrations together, but we don't go on anywhere else. Right. No, but that's why. Yeah. Uh, and it took a long time to realize that there were people uh who didn't think that way yeah but that's the way we were brought up remember i don't know if i was telling you that when i was i mean i was seven years old maybe eight years old and i used to go to the field with my grandmother and the, the people that owned the field were white of course and my grandmother used to go and pick cotton or whatever and she would be nervous as hell because the the uh, the sister of the white family that used to live there would come over and talk, and my grandmother would say, "Well, what did you want? Why did you do that?" And I could never figure out why she got so nervous about it because this seemed like a nice lady. Till till and until then I understood. Mm. Then I understood why she was so nervous, mm. and I was a kid. Yeah. But I still could have died. I could have been killed. Right. You know, it, it, that's the way it was. That's the way you came up. Yeah. So, Debbie, I mean, a recent one I asked you about, because someone asked me, was about Emmett being put into a pig boil and such. Oh, I mean, I yeah, I, I, I'd heard that one too. And I asked um, the FBI agent, Dale Killinger, if. Um, because if he had been put in a pig boiler, his body would have shown that. Right. And he said there's nothing to indicate that. And so I, that one doesn't look like it was yeah. anything more than just some rumor that floated around. And I know the person that mentioned it said he heard it from a few different people. But, you know, rumors can be heard by a few different people and independently can be spreading them around, too. So it, there's no indication. And, in fact, it wasn't just there was no indication. He was pretty adamant that Dale know it. He, that couldn't have happened. So what other rumors have you, that, that have been dispelled? Well, you know, of course, everything from the Huey story was, you know, that's the stuff that's stuck for so many years. Right. And that's the stuff that has to be refuted on a regular basis. Um, Emma Till is, in fact, one of the things that Carolyn Bryant told the defense attorneys on September 2nd, 1955, which is, you know, way before the trial, a few weeks, for the trial, just a couple of days after the kidnapping, was that they brought him to the store. That you know, she admitted, you know, to the defense that yes, um, they kidnapped him, or I don't think she used those words, but said they 
brought this Negro uh, to the to the store for me to identify. He was scared, but he hadn't been hurt, hadn't been harmed. So if he was scared at that point, um, when they were at the store, how's he going to be when they're beating him up and and doing all the stuff? Their version was he was defiant to the end and said, they asked him right before they shot him, are you still as good as we are? And he said, yeah. That was Huey's version that came from Milam, I guess. He was clearly scared to death. And I can't imagine what it was, the suffering and, and the fear. Um, when we see George Floyd calling out for his mother, uh, when he has all these people around him, think how Emmett Till was secluded somewhere in the dark um, and 14 years old, you know, he's not standing up to them. And, but they had to preserve that image because again, he was, it showed he was this man, not just a boy, and that he was acting outside of his place, acting out of line by stepping out of his place. And so those things need to be, you know, those are just ugly part. I mean, the whole story is ugly, but those are ugly parts that, that people have kept alive because it's a way to somehow justify. Even if subconsciously you're justifying his death, it makes it a little easier for you to bear if he was standing up to them and doing all this stuff. And that's just so wrong, you know? And so, you know, any portrayal of his death cannot portray any of that stuff from Huey like that. Right. And um, that's given many, many people a reason to justify him being killed. Yeah. Especially after the, that story first came out and people in the South are reading it. Um, they, they were able to sleep a little bit better by getting that version. Right. Yeah. So we, we, we've been talking about Emmett and, and one of the central characters uh, is Carolyn Bryant. Because um, it's her words, you know, white tears, uh, that leads to his death. But there's always been a controversy around what she says and what she didn't say and so forth. And even, even the most recent book um, where supposedly she confesses that, uh, that she lied. But now there's even controversy around that. So what, what's really going on here? In my other life, I'm a filmmaker and one of my more fascinating films I created is the award-winning film titled Black, White, and Us. It's about viewing racism through the lens of transracial adoptions in Utah. Utah? Yeah, Utah. It just so happens to be the transracial adoption capital of the world. So what happens when white families who didn't believe racism existed anymore adopts a black child? Find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMalholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. Well, it's on that one, it's so complicated because, you know, first of all, did she lie? The answer is yes, but we know that not so much from what Tim Tyson said, she said, you know, 60 plus years later. It's from what she said to the defense attorneys on the day she gave that interview on September 2nd, 1955, and compare that to what she said on the witness stand. That's it was on the witness stand where Emmett grabs her by the waist and propositions her and says, Don't worry, I've been with white women before, and then she struggles to get away. Um, she doesn't say any of that to the attorneys two days after the kidnapping. 
So that's how we know she lied about that. And we can assume because Milam and Bryant told Mose Wright, we want the boy to talk, that this story was concocted after the, his death for the benefit of the jury. Because even though she didn't tell it to the jury, they were hoping she would. In fact, she was on the stand and started to tell it, and the judge dismissed the jury. So the defense was hoping to get that because, again, that would have been a black and she referred to him as a black as a Negro man, so that would have been a case of a black man attempting to rape a white woman, and that's the version they needed the jury to hear. There's no evidence she was telling that prior to his death, and so his death, I think, the evidence points to his death being based on just him going into the store and whistling, and if there was some talk, because the men said, we want the boy that did that talk. Um, as far as the whistle, I know some people have said, have made this assumption that when she confessed to Tim Tyson that she lied, that she lied about everything, but it was Emma Till's cousins who told the press about the whistle. You know, from the day of the um, kidnapping until the trial, every statement about the whistle that came in the papers, that made its way to the papers, and it was known as the wolf whistle trial at that point, wolf whistle murder, that all came from Emmett's cousins because she didn't say a public word about the, the whistle until the trial, but his cousins were telling that to the press a lot. So the whistle wasn't her story to make up because it didn't originate with her. She did verify it, but that, so that's an important one. I mean, he did whistle, but he didn't do really anything beyond that from what the evidence shows. Um, and, uh, as far as what she, you know, so she did lie, but whether she told that lie to Steve, to Tim Tyson or not, that's been the, the controversy lately because he didn't record that portion of his interview and uh, his notes that he turned over to the FBI are just scratched out on a small portion of a legal pad. But he formulated some lengthy quotes from that that he put in a in an article in a in an in a essay he wrote that he never published that leaked that I got a copy of, and he walks a lot of that back or at least tones it down for his book. And some of that was good stuff. That in his article he said that Carolyn Bryant and the and the family sat down with the defense attorneys and concocted this story. Well, he doesn't put that in the book. Um, and I think that's a bombshell that you wouldn't pull back from the book that you would just put in a in a in a paper for your grad students. And so things like that make me wonder if he made it up or exaggerated it because she's denying she told him that. And if you read and, and to say it was a confession, it makes it sound like she came to him and said, I got to get this off my chest. I made this up. It was just casually, even if you accept his version, it was just casually mentioned in like a just a few words where she said, you, 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 you tell these stories for so long that you can't remember what's true, but that part is not true. That's right. all he said. Yeah. So it wasn't some. He didn't even record it audio wise. He didn't even record it. And so whether he got that from the, her original 1955 story where it was clear she changed her story and he wanted to use that to sell a book. I'm not accusing him of that here, just right. in case he wants to sue or something as a result of this today. But I, I, I know that's some of the stuff the FBI was looking into. So 
until they conclude something there. There's just some layers of controversy about his interactions with her that you don't know what's true and what isn't, but it boils down to she did lie about him attempting to rape her. You know, that part is a lie, whether it came from, whether she told Tim Tyson or not. Right. And so, and, and, and the issue particularly for Carolyn then becomes is that there's not a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, statue of limitation for lying on the stand. That there's not. Right. See that I don't know. I see. I know that my, it, my, underst- my that's my understanding is that you know part part of the issue is is that you you could actually still prosecute her for actually lying on the stand if that's the case, and that's why when the book came out saying that she was you know that she was recanting that that she turned around and said well well wait a second no Tim you know Timothy's lying uh, I didn't say that at all he's making that stuff up what I said uh, was true and on that one I wasn't sure because I know that when they. Uh, tried to indict her in 2007 it was for manslaughter right um you know that not that she was present during the murder but she didn't for manslaughter charges you don't have to be you just have to aid them like either steer them towards somebody or that and because she uh told you know there was evidence that she told her husband and milam that he was the right one and weeded out a couple of other young men earlier that day that they he wasn't the right one Right. But that was how she um, aided them, and and I know there was precedent. They 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 were able to point to some other cases, so that was the that's kind of what they used for that. But the the a biracial grand jury just said that there wasn't enough evidence. So, and what you're referring to, by the way, is is, is if, correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, Mose Wright testifies that um, that there was. They took Emmett Till to the car or to the truck and asked, is this him? And he hears a soft voice that says, yes. And it was too dark for him to see. And so all he went by was the voice. But, you know, then people say, well, who else could it have been? And then earlier in the day, they were driving around picking up, you know, African-Americans. And is this him? No. And then I think there's one person who said that, uh, well, whose teeth were broken because they threw him out of the car while it was moving and it busted off his teeth. Yeah, and there was another case where a, 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 a young boy and his grandmother came into the Bryant store, right. and Roy went up to him and said, are you the one that did this? And he, the kid didn't know what he was talking about. And Carolyn said, no, no, that's not the right one. It's interesting because the FBI interviewed the kid, and as an adult in 2005, and Carolyn backed up that story. She remembered that. So that one they had evidence for. The other that the kid, they th- the guy they threw out of the car, they only had uh, that guy's word. There's no reason to doubt it, but they were able to at least trace the one back from the very beginning. You know, they had some verifying testimony. So they had that to strengthen that she aided and abetted them. Uh, but a grand jury didn't see it that way. At least they didn't think the evidence was strong enough. So I wasn't sure now if with what the Tyson book, Right. If that was to strengthen the manslaughter charge, or they were just going to try to get her for perjuring herself on the stand, because I thought the statute of limitations would have run out, but I don't know the law. Well, you know, that could be wrong. I'm not an attorney either, but that, that's that's what I understood it. But there's one other thing as well is that uh, her sister-in-law, J.W. Milam's wife, uh, she told the FBI that she wasn't there when she screamed. You know that suppose so Carolyn claims that she screamed out. You know, so she screamed when, 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 you know, Emmett Till grabs her. 
And in one instance, her sister-in-law says, well, I wasn't even there. In the other instance, she says, I never heard any scream. Yeah. Well, as far as a scream, if she'd screamed, you got to remember the front doors would have been open with a, to the store with the screen door shut to keep mosquitoes out. But it was right. so Wheeler and his cousins, they never heard anything either. They didn't hear anything like that. Um, so that sounds like she made that up. As far as Juanita Milan being there, she, it was not until 2005 that she um, told the FBI she wasn't there. So as far as what she said back in the day, I, I know in 2005 she said she thought she was in Greenville that night. That's where she was from, and her mom and dad lived there. When she talked to the defense attorneys in 1955, around the same time Carolyn did, she doesn't address being at the store. She just said she was in Greenwood the night of the kidnapping. So I think possibly 50, you know, some years later she's interviewed, she is confusing the night of the kidnapping with the night of the store incident. And the reason I think that is because it was her car that was there at the store that, because the Bryans didn't own a car. Her, and, and, and the way Carolyn described it was that she went out to Carolyn's, to Juanita's car to get this gun. Well, the witnesses said she went out to a car to get a gun too. So if Juanita Milam's car was there, it seemed, and JW wasn't there, because they didn't know about this yet, or they had gone and killed him until that night. Um, seems that Juanita either forgot she was there or wanted to distance herself from to the FBI from the whole story saying, hey, I wasn't around for any of this. Because you know, I'm sure she was worried she might be yeah. prosecuted well, too. And then on top of that, um, so Carolyn, I think she, Carolyn tells the, uh, the FBI agent that Dale, is that right? Dale, yeah. Um, that when Wheeler or, or whomever, whichever the cousins went in to, gra to grab Emmett to bring him out, that she said, I have no idea why he, why they came in to get him. It was as if like, you know, well, why, why would they have to, why did they have to come in even though all this stuff was going on? And again, they were by they were by the door, so they were kind of keeping an eye on them. And they even said that nothing even happened when they were exchanging the money because she says that you know he grabbed her by the wrist. And they, in the FBI files at least, there's you know, the conversation is that there was nothing that actually took place. Yeah, the 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 one where she said she, well, I, and I can't remember which if that this is also in the later ones, but in that first interview she gave a couple of days after the kidnapping. She said that this other guy came in, but there was no incident that he left willingly, that he didn't have to be dragged out or anything right. like that. And I think on the witness stand, she makes she changes that too to say that someone grabbed him by the arm and pulled him and out. Pulled him out, so make it sound like he wouldn't. And I think she said he indicated he'd be back too. And so none of that. So that gave the jury would have given the jury a reason to think she had reason to fear that he said, well, I'll be back, you know, and he didn't, her original story doesn't say that at all. Yeah. There's clearly some lying here. And, um, you know, that's, that's just, that's not in dispute. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Uh, why do you think, let's assume that we, 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 uh, we get to the bottom of the, the case, we understand the truth. We understand what happened. Why do you think that that case had such an impact on people? Well, and it is interesting because there had been so many lynchings, uh, 
post-Reconstruction in the South and other children, even cases of, of black women who were pregnant. And so people didn't have much empathy for a lynch victim. People would go to these lynchings in, as family. You see those postcards of kids there. Yeah. So people were taught from an early age not to have any, have any empathy at all in these cases. So it is puzzling at that level. I, there are a few things you could point to. You know, there were, there were the, the anti-lynching efforts of the NAACP and Ida. Uh, Ida B. Wells? Ida B. Wells, yeah. Um, and so the era of lynching reached its peak and up to three years or so before Emmett Till's lynching, there hadn't been a reported lynching in the South until after the Brown decision. And then there was this backlash. And so, and then, you know, uh, Reverend um, uh, George Lee is, is killed, who's active in voter registration, and Lamar Smith on the steps of the courthouse uh, just two weeks before Emmett Till. And because in the aftermath of Brown, uh, there's this voter voter voting registration drives. You know, he was passing out voter registration literature. So people were starting, you know, they were already living in fear of the end of segregation. And they saw, they were starting to see the domino effect with black people trying to get others to vote. And, and so they saw, you know, se you know, end of segregation, that means blacks have become empowered. Uh, they're showing that here because they're trying to get people to register to vote. So the timing, and so there had been a couple of new, uh, because the South was getting in the news a little bit more after Brown as a result of that, that they were under a little more scrutiny. And so these other two lynchings come along, nobody's charged. And then a, a kid from Chicago, so the fact that he was a child, even though they'd been child lynched in the past, it was kind of an era where people weren't used to this and people having, starting to kind of have to deal with this all over again. So it's kind of fresh news now if there's a lynching. And the fact that he was a child and from Chicago made a difference because the Northern press reported it and the black press in the North. And so it kind of forced the South to, to deal with it or to have to, to get, couldn't just ignore it. And the fact that his mother, as LeVon said, put his body out there for everybody to see, that was a big moment because that seeing him, seeing what happened to Emmett Till, not just seeing that he was lynched or that seeing he died as a result of a hate crime or racism, you got to see what it looked like. And as, and as she said, she could never explain that. The whole world needed to see what she saw. And that had a big impact. That changed everything. An Ordinary Hero was my first award-winning documentary. It's about the life of my mother, Joan Trumpower Mulholland, and her participation in the civil rights movement. For most of us, our mothers are heroes because they're mothers, and mom is just mom. But when your mother's a civil rights icon, and yet you never really knew it, things change. Go check out An Ordinary Hero and find out how choosing to do what was right instead of what was easy help change the world. You can find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. And so this launches people into the movement or, they, you know, or it sticks with them long enough that when they are coming of age into college, um, you know, it, it, becomes the, you know, it becomes that galvanizing force that's, right. that changes that. I mean, and, and even uh, Rosa Parks is quoted as saying, or at least, you know, I don't know if it's a direct quote or not, but that she was thinking of Emmett 
um, which would have made sense because it was at least TRM Howard was speaking up there just the week before or so. Yeah, like the Sunday before she got on the bus. And, and Levon, maybe you could answer this one for me too. And when we talk about Emmett Till case propelling the civil rights movement, as I put it in the title, is the subtitle of the book. There were these other. You know, there's. It wasn't the. There was the other steps that came before that, and one of the big ones was Southern uh, or, or black men who fought in World War II, and they're fighting for freedom overseas, and they come home, and they don't have that same freedom they're fighting for on other in other countries that right. they don't have that at home and and you know as a people we we tend to honor our veterans or, or those who fought in wars but they had so many people disparage black soldiers i know james eastland said they were lazy and and didn't fight uh well and didn't do their fair share because praising a black soldier would have been really hard because then you have to explain to them why they're not allowed that same freedom. You know, they fought for, for our freedom, but we're not giving it to them back. So they were disparaged. Did you experience black soldiers being these World War II vets kind of having that awakening, uh, coming home and seeing what life was like for them or being disparaged by people in high places? Did you see that or experience it? In Mississippi, I think a lot of them came home thinking they would, I think a lot of them went to war for two reasons. One of them was that they felt they would be treated differently when the war was over. And I think part of it, they really felt that for some reason, you know, America was 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 their country and they had a duty to fight for it. So I think that, I, you know, that's what got them there. When they came home, they expected that things like the GI Bill and and, and uh, uh, them able to go into stores to do whatever would all, all be wonderful. They would all be treated like human beings, and that's not what happened, South or North. Uh, so I think that that people were disappointed in how they were dealt with. People used to wear their uniforms when they came home, black men, thinking that it, that meant something. It didn't mean anything. There was resentment in, from white people when they would see a black man in a uniform. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I don't know why, to this day, I, I struggle with why a lot of them didn't just stay in Europe or why they ever went at all or any of that. And I still struggle with that because of the way they were treated when they came home. Uh, and and, uh, and they saw an article about the code talkers the same thing happened to them. They live on reservations. They're not treated well. Uh, so, you know, I, I watched them just slowly. They won't even, my, my own man, whom I didn't like, I might as well be honest about that, but they don't even talk about it, what happened to them. And they don't talk about it because there was nothing for them to be proud of. When they get together, you could hear them talk about uh, you know, uh, maybe a battle they were in or something like that. But in terms of, of coming home and being proud of the fact that they were soldiers, they weren't. Many of them weren't because of the way they were treated. So, I mean, the message is sent home clearly before you you leave for war and then when you come back that this is not your America. Yeah, it is not. You're still not part of, of society. And, and so Emmett Till 
became you know this this symbol that you know that represented that here is you know on a lot of different levels in and of itself so i think that 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 does that and then if you like was mentioned previously debris when you talked about george floyd right that there's still this reminder that there's as levon you you said in a previous podcast episode that there was these, there's these two americas and that uh you know that that question of 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 why should I be a part of this America if this, this part of America doesn't want me? But then you see what happens. So you see what happens to an Emmett Till, you see what happens to a Trayvon, you see what happens to a George Floyd. Um, and that creates that, that fire to, to, to fight for that freedom. To... I go on Facebook, right? And because uh, I, I, I go on Facebook. And, and last night there was a, 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 a posting on Facebook where this, uh, I guess a five-year-old kid had been shot in the head. White kid. Right? White kid. Yeah. And people were saying, well, why, where are all the demonstrations? Where are the politicians? Um, uh, but it was hard. I mean, what they were saying was I'm saying the two murders have nothing to do with each other. I said, it's wrong to kill the kid. Why you gotta bring George Floyd in the middle of the kid getting killed? They're murders. They both got killed uh, for no reason. I said, why don't you just say that? Why you have to denigrate all the demonstrators or the people who are angry or the people? And and furthermore, there was really only one kid that got killed. You'll excuse me for saying that, but you know, let's let's not guess not. You know, w w you go. You're not demonstrating. You're telling me to demonstrate. Right. You're saying that those people who are demonstrating for George, for George Floyd, are wrong. I don't see you out demonstrating for this five-year-old. Right. You know. So people have to. It's like even in death, we can't be left alone. Well, I don't believe I just said that. Uh, but they just kill the guy. So let let let's just say that. They killed this guy. Oh, and by the way, they also killed this kid. And they're both wrong. Right. But there's, but there's different levels of being wrong on that as well. I mean, I mean, wrong is wrong, but the fact is is that George Floyd was killed by the by by the police and the state apparatus that, that's in to do that. Whereas this boy was this this five year old child was killed by a neighbor. Um, and that's the thing too. I've because I've had people ask me about that. Um, I've been on Facebook seeing that same stuff and kind of, because I've had some family members and that have been sharing those memes about uh, Cannon Hinton, I think his name was Hinton. Cannon, so yeah. Uh, you know, but his, but as tragic as it was, what, what's there to demonstrate against? Because the killer was arrested and he'll be prosecuted and there's no question he'll be convicted. Right. So, everybody knows it was wrong right. and justice is going to be swift. So what's there to demonstrate right. when there's a systemic issue, like with the George Floyd or so many black men get killed and then their the killer isn't brought to justice forever. It takes forever to arrest them even in that. That's what people are protesting about. Right. And so if it's a systemic issue, then any black man has to live in fear to some degree about this happening to them. Because random acts are different than targeted systemic issues. 
that's why demonstrations are appropriate here because it's a whole it's a whole different thing. It doesn't lessen the tragedy of the other ki killings at all. Right. Exactly. But those are being taken care of. If George Floyd, and if if there wasn't a a, a a pattern or problem that you see with police, how they treat black men or black people in general, but black men especially, it would it would be different. And I'm sure there are those kinds of killings of black people by white people or whatever that are local and don't make news because they're not part of a systemic problem and people need to remember that too so it's not the how the the amount of news it gets it's just why it's getting news that you need to look at and right. systemic problem then it's a whole different ball game right. I, I, I think one of the you know one of the compelling things to think about this this white boy who gets killed by this black man it's the fact that the black man wasn't killed by the police when they showed up. They they actually managed to actually arrest him. Right? I, I was really surprised at that. Yeah. Quite frankly. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, but but again, you know, you kind of come back to this thing that just like you were talking about, you know, very very much earlier on, Debbie, is 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 while Emmett Till trial is getting all this attention and so forth. That well, what about the three white kids that were that were killed that weren't, you know, that no one has said anything about, you know, taking place in Mississippi. Um, you know, so it's here, here we are again, seeing these parallels all these years later, someone's got to bring up something, but what about us? You know, it's like, well, wait a second, you know, this is, you know, us meaning white people. All right, this, this is a different narrative than what's going on with, with an Emmett Till, with a Trayvon, with a George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so forth. So that's why we can never solve the problem hmm. because we treat them as different and they're not. They, they, two people died. Now, let's deal with why this one died, and then we'll deal with why this one died. We can't, it's not a one for one. Mm -hmm. So the, this little boy got killed. I feel bad about that. This got nothing to do with the fact that George Floyd sat there for eight and a half minutes with a, with a, a policeman with his uh, knee on his neck. Mm -hmm. What does one thing have to do with the other? And the reason we can't solve the problem is because, once again, the majority says, uh, you you're about to get something that we're not getting. We're gonna we, you you don't get justice until we get justice. Right. Th that's that's why we can't solve the problem. Because yet the uh, the 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 discussion ends up being the wrong thing. Why why are we talking about what what does it matter that that uh, uh, a five year old kid got shot and George Floyd got uh, slaughtered, and by the way, people are demonstrating. They're not just demonstrating for George Floyd; they're demonstrating for my history, for because of a history of this happening. Right. That's why they're demonstrating. And why are you asking me to demonstrate when you should be out there? If it, if it bothers you enough, don't ask me why people are demonstrating for him. Go out there and demonstrate for the boy. Right. Let's demonstrate for both. Want a great way to help a worthy organization and educate children about the civil rights movement? Visit our foundation, the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation, at the jtmfoundation.org. That's the jtmfoundation.org. We are a 501c3 established to help end racism through education. A $5 monthly recurring donation will provide curriculum for 30 students. As my mother used to say, I can't do everything but I can do something, because doing nothing is not an option.
If you have wanted to help in this cause, but didn't know how, now you can. The Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation at the jtmfoundation.org. It's compelling that, you know, with the murder of Emmett Till and the demonstrations that, that did take place and a movement that was created from that as well, yeah. that 50 plus years later, we're still dealing with the same issues. Right. Um, we still have more Emmett Tills that are out there. Um, so, it's, it's, so what is the lesson from all the work that you've done to study the 10 years and obviously it's been several years since the book came out uh, but for you as an expert on Emmett Till um, one is one is why why did you at the end of the day why did you write the book and then two what, what do you feel is the lessons that you really want people to take away from the, the, the story of Emmett Till the true story of Emmett Till well a few things, I guess. You know, when you, when you when you think of what these men did to Emmett Till, grown men viciously murdering a 14-year-old, throwing his body in the river, not caring about the loss his mother was going to, and the mourning she was going to go through, that you could go home and go to bed after that. You know, what brings what brings people to be able to, to do something like that? What kind of hatred is it just... And and when they and when they talked about it, of course, they were using racial slurs. And they talked to Huey, and and uh, it was all about race. You know, him not staying in his place, this and that. And the fact that people can rally behind killers um, because losing their their way of life was more important to them than the life of a fourteen year old. You know, these are human beings doing this that can get worked up for whatever reason to be able to do unspeakable things and justify it. These aren't just, you know, in the case of Mylon Bryant, these are a case of, of a couple of killers and those who were involved with him in, in kidnapping and killing Emmett Till, but the society that justified and, and went to bat for them. You know, these were doctors, lawyers, preachers, um, upstanding citizens, you know, by all other accounts. But they let themselves get to that point of the life that they backed them. So they were, you know, complicit in this, in that sense that they were fine with the life of a 14 year old boy being snuffed out uh, for this greater cause of preserving segregation. So it tells me what people can let themselves, the, the level that people can fall to and not realize it and, and justify it. And they can walk around with a clear conscience. So, that tells me one thing how we, and then it, it gives us something to measure where we're at now. Um, in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, case, for instance, I mean, we saw a lot. The one thing that hit me right away was how many people were now saying Black Lives Matter, who never said it before, wouldn't have said it before. Yeah. But this one woke a lot of people up, kind of like the Emmett Till case did. There'd been all these other cases of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, who was just a little boy with a play gun that was just shot dead. Um, uh, and the Aubrey case, you know, too, which is still pending, but you know, these men it took forever to arrest these men and he's just lynched by these men, you know, in, in the street um, and all this other stuff. But then suddenly the George Floyd case woke everybody up, just like all the lynchings prior to Emmett Till, to the extent they were known, it bothered some people, some it, they didn't.
But then Emmett Till comes along and seems to wake everybody up. George Floyd woke people up, but at the same time, we're seeing a similar backlash too that we saw in the aftermath of Emmett Till. I'm seeing more racist memes online by people that I thought I had respect for. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe some of these, you know, they're, they're, they're doing this comparison, the five-year-old and trying to emphasize that he was killed by a black man. They, you know, the meme scratches out man and puts black on there to emphasize. So it's like suddenly they have an excuse to let all this rage they've been holding in come out and they feel justified to do it. They're not shy about saying things that are very obviously blatantly racist. Right. So at the same time we wake up, it always seems to generate those who've been pretending to not be racist or to pretending to be going along with society that now they have their chance to let it all out. And we see the ugliest things we've, we've seen. And again, it's people who you walk around as respectable people at some level that are letting all this ugly stuff come out. So it tells me we haven't moved as far as we should have um, by a long shot. And the Emmett Till case, we, it's just the same stuff. Everybody, you know, the people at the time of Emmett Till were saying it wasn't a race crime. It could have happened to anybody. Um, or what about so-and-so and so-and-so? You're not hearing about them. Nowadays, everybody looks back on Emmett Till, even the most conservative voices out there, you know, because I've seen Glenn Beck even, people like him say, yes, it was, a, it was an ugly race crime. But these ones today aren't. And... And I've said this, this is the first time I've said this one, it's just that with history, sometimes it takes time and perspective, obviously, to really grasp it. That's why people can look back at Emmett Till and say it was a race crime. It was, a, it was an ugly one, but we're not that way anymore. We don't let those things happen. That's what you hear the most conservative voices say. They admit that happened then, but not today. What they haven't faced yet is the time and perspective to deal with things like George Floyd and Tamir Rice and right, right. all these. And I would rather learn right away from our past and not have to wait 50 years to, to reassess what these cases mean. We need to look at them now because if we always have to wait 50 years to come to an agreement, yeah, that was bad, um, we're never going to get past this. We need to learn. That's how we learn from history. We don't, you know, we, we, yeah, we learn from history with time and perspective, but it should help us understand our present a little bit better and not have to wait so dang long. And um, those are the lessons we, we've, we refuse to learn collectively as a group of people, as human beings. And we need to, we need to, we need to learn from this stuff and learn from it. Now we don't have time uh, to keep having these same arguments and having some other case come along that wakes a portion of us up and makes, turns the rest of us into rabid, ugly people, you know, and I don't have an answer really other than, we just need to do it. We need to learn from our past, but we need to all get on board with that. The one hope, and it's the hope that existed, you know, even back during Emmett Till that we see today is that people do respond. People do uh, lend their voice to, to what, you know, to the tragedy, um, to the injustice that's taking place. And I always hope that, you know, we just have to wait for old races to die off, but they have posterity that they've, they've influenced, you know, and so that's why we have, we see people who are young, like the people that killed um, Mr. Aubrey, um, it was a father and son, you know, and uh, 
you, you just teach that stuff on to next generations. And so I don't really have that hope that we'll get that when the older ones die off, it'll be over with because they, those, then they teach the younger ones and they become old and teach the younger ones. And so maybe there'll be a slow, slowly, you know, but much too slow for what we need as a society. You know, we, we can't afford. Yeah, I think the old ones, just, what we need is for the old ones to die off sooner. <laughs> the, Certainly the electing them as presidents yes. and, and letting their followers then justify and kind of echo things they say, um, which yeah, I've, was, I've seen a new ugliness as a result of the last few years. Yeah, it, People uh, are now feeling emboldened to say and act in ways because yeah. of but, but we're always also seeing people who are willing to stand up. There seem to be more clear battle lines, but the people right. fighting the battle and, and determined on each side seems to be stronger. Right. But Both sides yeah. seem to be stronger. <laughs> but as history has shown us, uh, the, the right does prevail at the end of the day, because those lines were still there during the civil rights movement as well. There were very stark you know, lines you could very much you know, delineate. And yet segregation ended. So... Well, wait, 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 what? Jim Crow and segregation ended. So we do see that, you know, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act was signed. We are seeing, it's not perfect progress, Levon, <laughs> but, well, the, but it's progress. The, voting, the Voting Rights Act was just, they just got through butcher, butchering, well, butchering the yes. Civil Rights Act, right? Right. Fact. Uh, the Voting Rights Act, the president is now going to close the post office, Right. right? So we still got a ways to go yet. We still got a ways to go. I'm going to tell you, if you really look at what's, what changed, if you look at towns that are like, there's three people in there that are black, and they're out there marching and talking about Black Lives Matter. That's what changed, that more people have seen that they, they need to do something, white people, uh, that, we need, that we can do this together. And it's the first time I think in history that people, that a lot of people have done, tried to do stuff together. Mm. Uh, their English needs some little work, but uh, I, I think that's what's, that's what's encouraging, that there are enough people who are different colors, red, white, black, working together to try to solve this. And quite frankly, I think it's because of timing, the epidemic, the, the all the white kids that went to college now find out that everybody's been lying to them, so they're pissed off. George Floyd gets killed, so they don't like that. So I think a lot of things have happened. I'm not I'm yeah. not saying we haven't gotten anywhere, but I'm saying for the first time in the history of this country, we have that many people that are different that are working together. Yeah, uh, that's that's what's important. And that's and important. and they 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 carried this all over the world. Yeah. Uh, I think that's because, but I think we got a lot to do. Yeah. Well, Debra, we truly appreciate your time and willingness to, to join us on our podcast, The Uncomfortable Truth, and to, to share uh, your stories and, and the massive amount of research you did about Emmett Till and the lessons we can derive from that. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed every moment of it today, being yeah. with both of you. Thank you very much. Yeah, LaVon, man. Wow. Yeah, thank you again. Successful. That. You finally got power back in your house after a week. and After a week, yes. A yeah. hot week. 
I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah. all, your, all your frozen foods get have to be thrown out or do Yeah. I mean we we well some of it we took to my daughter's. Fortunately she's only lives about ten minutes from us. But a lot of it just it just got thrown away because there was wait, no way to keep it. Wait, 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 your daughter already lives 10 minutes away from you and you guys were sleeping in a hot house? I'm I, yeah. I trying to throw her under the bus in this podcast. I'm just asking questions. Yes. Oh. You, you hear that? I'm not, throwing, I'm not throwing you under the bus. I'm just asking questions. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we did. We took a lot of stuff to our house yeah. that was in the freezer. But we figured, well, a couple of days we're gonna leave stuff in the refrigerator. Well, well a couple of days turned into eight. Well, you're so, telling me you've been telling me, oh, it's so hot at night. Well, why is it hot at night when you couldn't be at your daughter's house? Don't ask me. Right. Because you're gonna start something else. <laughs> I ask you that question. I might ask that question. How do you know I didn't ask that question much? All, right. All right, I'm just <laughs> just looking out for you. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh god. All right. All right, babe. Right on. Appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. Make sure you head to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Loki Mulholland. Show a little love if you can and get access to even more content. Until next time, don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.